from uh, Romans for the rest of this month. Uh, as the bulletin informed you, uh, Carol and I will be gone uh, for the rest of December, and Pastor Tom will be preaching uh, through the Christmas season. But the reason we're doing Psalm 40 this morning is because our life group is doing a study in uh, Messianic Psalms. And Psalm 40 has always been uh, one of my favorite psalms, and it is a Messianic psalm. And as I was studying it for our life group, I got so excited about it, I decided I just wanted to share it with you, all of us. So this is a, a fantastic psalm. Uh, talking about rejoicing in God's deliverance, rejoicing in God rescuing us, rejoicing in God's salvation of us. You know, as, as children of God, we should never have our senses dulled uh, to the, the great things God has done for us and the provisions that he makes for us each and every day. I mean, that's why we remember the Lord, why the Lord set it up that way, so that we our senses wouldn't be dulled to that, that would constantly remember what he's done for us. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, uh, we, we read that we should continually up, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess or acknowledge his name. And we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that we are to give thanks in all things, in all things, for this is the will of God for us. And then we also read in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 23, these words, Remember my affliction and my wanderings. This is coming from the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, which is kind of a succinct way of describing our life before having a relationship with Christ, as well as how difficult life can be even as believers. It can be very challenging. He goes on, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Amen. So of all people, we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should understand the true meaning of you know, giving thanks for God's deliverance of us. We've tasted of his steadfast love and his compassion and his faithfulness to us. We've experienced his mighty act of deliverance from the penalty of sin. And, and we've enjoyed his faithfulness in delivering us out of many trials and tribulations. The suffering that we talked about recently in Romans 8. That is momentary light suffering compared with the eternal weight of glory. And we look forward, don't we? We've already... Uh, been thinking about this and singing about it. The, the return of the Lord, his final act of deliverance when he welcomes us into his presence. Now that may happen by way of death here or it may be, happen by way of his return for us, but in either way it is his act of delivering us from this painful, sinful, uh, corrupted world. And the theme of Psalm 40 is really very clear. It is wait on the Lord and you'll experience his 
deliverance. You'll have joy in his deliverance. And, and, and the psalm's broken down very easily into two segments when you read it. And David first writes about how God had delivered him from some past trouble. And he, he says, I praise God. I praise God for that, that he delivered me in the past. And, then the, and that's verses 1 through 10. And then the second half, verses 11 through 17, he talks about his confidence that the, the Lord will deliver him in his present or future trials or tribulations. And in that, he is very prayerful. He's prayerful about it. He prays to the Lord and praises the Lord. So my hope as, as we leave here later this morning or later after lunch and after setting up and we go home and we have a, a, a week uh, that it will be like every other week where we have faced our, with trials and tribulations and some suffering and some joys and so on. But we will be rejoicing this week in God's faithfulness to deliver us uh, in our time of need and to realize that his past act of delivering us from the penalty of sin is proof that we can trust him to deliver us in each and every trial that we face. So that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Begins with God. Uh, David saying, God has delivered me. And, and so I praise him. Verses 1 through 10. Now, if you're filling in your insert, there, there, you can see that there are a few different things that we'll cover under these verses. The first, which is the experience of God's deliverance. David writes about his experience of God's deliverance. And we don't know the occasion for David writing the psalm, but I want to do I do want to point out that this was written to be delivered over to the choir master. Notice that little heading at the beginning of your psalm. It was meant to be sung by the congregation on a regular basis to praise the Lord over his faithfulness to deliver us. And so David doesn't identify what it was, but he does identify that he wants to praise and thank the Lord for his faithfulness in delivering him in the past. So it may have been one of those times when Saul was chasing him around the land of Canaan, you know, seeking to, to kill him. He was like a, a fox being, cha- uh, a, a rabbit being chased by a fox going through the woods, you know, constantly ducking out of trouble just to find the fox around the, the next corner. And, and it could have been that, or it could have been a, uh, the time when his own son Absalom rebelled against him, sought to steal the kingdom, and in doing so, he planned to kill his own father. It could have been that uh, circumstance that David is praising God for deliverance. Whatever it was, and he faced many other trials, uh, whatever it was, uh, it generated these words that I think we should be able to relate to, that God has delivered us from some past uh, trouble that we've had. Whether it's, you just think of the salvation that he's given us in Christ, you know, being saved from the penalty of sin. Maybe it was some financial difficulty that God rescued you from, or a, a very tough relational situation that you were in. God worked miraculously and restored that relationship, or... You know, there's all kinds of different ways that we can think of that. But those who know God should all be able to personally rejoice in the times of God's deliverance uh, for some significant trial that, that they can think of. I mean, maybe God has rescued you from some terrible time of depression. Yeah, believers can go through that. 
perhaps you could say, well, he extricated me from some terrible financial uh, difficulty. Maybe you've had, uh, you know, the joy of being liberated from some entangling sin, you know, that just kept you all tied up and guilty, and God rescued you from that. All of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior can say that we've experienced the greatest act of God's deliverance, right? Delivering us from the the penalty that we rightly deserved, which was laid on Christ, our Lord, so that we might be given the righteousness of God in him. Notice what David says. I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. And these words hardly do justice to David's expression. What it really sounds more like is this. I waited with endurance and patience eagerly hoping for the Lord. Hmm. I, I wonder, patience is not generally uh, a strong suit. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear believers you know, say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm praying that the Lord will give me more patience. Be careful, because what he'll bring into your life might not be so wonderful to teach you patience, to endure uh, you know, and trust him. But it's not. Patience is described as one pers- by one person as letting your mo- motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. Uh, we don't drive with gears much anymore, do we? It's all automatic. You, you get the picture, though. You know, you feel like well, you've been driving on the roads. You know, it's like you want to you want to just gun it and go and ram into someone, and, and you got to sit there patiently and just cool it. Maybe you've grown up like me, you know, thinking, uh, you know, I want what I want, and I want it now. I, I want what I want, and I want it now. Most people grow up thinking that way. But no writer enforces on us more earnestly than David the importance of waiting on the Lord and rejoicing in his deliverance. So here's Psalm 27:14, where it says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. And then Psalm 37, verse 7, he writes, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And David indicates that his patient waiting paid off. It paid off. He, he writes, uh, he was rewarded. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. So the picture is not of someone who casually acknowledges you when you speak to them. Like, oh, they turn, oh, uh, okay. And then they go about their business. So this picture, he inclined to me and heard my cry, is more of the Lord's attention being arrested and riveted to you in your time of need when you cry out to him. Uh, And as his attention is focused on your call for help, he inclines, he, he, he turns. And the picture is like he bends down, gets right down at your level, looks you in the eye, kind of like a father who would do that with a child who cries, cries out in pain or something. And, and dad gets down on his knees and, and comforts the child in their pain. And that is the picture that David is giving us of God as our father 
who tenderly bows down and gives his undivided attention to us, a son or a daughter who is crying out due to some pain that they are experiencing, some trouble that they need his help with. Beyond just hearing that, though David says that God did more for him, he drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And this is such a beautiful, visually graphic description of God delivering uh, his people. And it brings the stories, if you've read through your Bible, it brings the stories up to your mind, like the story of Joseph, who was taken by his brothers who hated him and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. And now God kept rescuing Joseph out of terrible trials, only to exalt him to the second highest position in, in Egypt. Or to me, it recalls the story of Jeremiah, who was thrown into a muddy cistern and left there and, and had to be rescued by Baruch, uh, lowering down garments that he could tie under his arms and pull them out and it took people to pull them out. The only way he could be rescued, there was no ladder out of the cistern. He was stuck in the mud at the bottom of it. And, uh, you know, it also brings to mind a story like Daniel is thrown into the lion's pit, right? The lion's den. Or his three friends were thrown into the fiery furnace and God rescued them out of those circumstances. And David says, he drew me up out of that and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And, you know, the truth is our circumstances, the troubles that we face in, in life can oftentimes seem like it's the deepest, darkest pit imaginable. A pit from which there's really no escape. Uh, before we trusted in Christ, I mean, we might have thought this way. It's like, there's no way that God could ever save me. There's no way. I'm too sinful. You know, I've done too much. God couldn't do that. I'm just too bad of a person. But God can rescue the sinner, can't he? Yeah, it could have been that. Uh, Literally, the, the words in, in this verse are, are so striking to me. He, it says that he brought me out of the pit of roaring. The pit of roaring. What in the world is that? I mean, our text says pit of destruction or something like that. But it's literally the pit of roaring. And as I, as I uh, studied those words long, many years ago, I was so struck uh, it created this picture in my mind of standing next to a, a waterfall. Like down in Seward, if you ever go down there, and there's you drive, go to the Sea Life Center, and if you keep going on that road, it goes around a turn, and there's this waterfall that's right next to the road, and you get out, and you're right next to it. It's so loud. It roars as that water is tumbling down. And it's so loud that you can hardly carry on a conversation with someone. It's like, ah! Can you believe how loud that is? And, and they're, what? what? I can't hear you. It, it feels so loud that you can't even hear yourself think. You know, is kind of the, the idea of it. And um, it, it, it's like going to a concert. I, I don't go to a lot of concerts, but the ones that I've been to, I go out of the concert and my ears are just roaring. The music's so loud. You know, and you get out there 
And it's like people who have tinnitus, that jet engine roar that is in their ears. It, it's just so loud. It, to me, it's like the sound coming out of the air handler right now. You hear that? Tom, he doesn't hear that. But it's roaring to me. And, and that's what David says. He lifted me out of this pit of roaring. And sometimes, you know, it is like that. Our troubles can be uh, so severe, that, so loud to us, if you will, that we could not imagine God being able to hear us. I cried out to the Lord and he heard me. Inclined his ear. He inclined himself. He heard me. You know, sometimes it feels like that wouldn't happen. But he does more than that. He delivers us out of it. Takes us out of that. Also, David says that he felt like he was in the miry bog. And that's pretty easy for us to imagine here in, in Anchorage or in Alaska. We, you know, the thinking of being stuck in the miry silt that are out, uh, you know, uh, around Anchorage. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a surveyor working down in Girdwood, and he got stuck in the miry clay and had had rescue people had to come to get him out. Otherwise, he would have died when the tide came in, would have covered him. And people have died that way here in Anchorage uh, and in Turnigan Arm multiple times over the years. So it's not hard to, to imagine this. Uh, again, as I thought through this, it, it made me think of those times where I was fishing. Um, one time I was down at Hope with my family. And I went out on the flat a little bit, and I'm fishing, and the tide started coming in. Before you knew it, I was stuck. I could not move my feet. And I had to be helped out of that, leaving my boot in the mud initially. I was able to get it out afterwards, but leaving my boot, my, it's the only way I could get out of it. And that's what David is kind of creating a picture of, of for us. He's emphasizing that sometimes our trials can be so gripping that they feel like we could never be extricated from it. There's just no way that we could be saved from it. We're stuck, and there's no way out. But friend, brother, sister in Christ, there is no pit so dark or loud, no mud too sticky, that God cannot rescue you. He can, and he does. The deafening roar of your despair can never be so loud that God cannot hear you when you cry out to him. Your sin can never be so clinging that God cannot rescue you from its grip. He can. God delivered David, and he will deliver us if we will wait patiently on the Lord He'll come to our aid. And more than just getting him out of trouble, David actually says, he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And more literally, this says that God set him like a sentinel who holds his ground upon a rocky crag. You know what a rocky crag is, right? It's that that boulder sticking out of the side of the mountain, you know, that's got a little ledge that you can be on. And God does not simply rescue us and leave us right next to the pit where we can fall back in so easily and get stuck again. Uh, you know, he, he, he rescues us and he puts our feet on solid ground, the high rock of safety out of harm's way. 
And if you drive down Turnigan Arm, you've seen doll sheep. Yes, they are doll sheep, not mountain goats that you see as you drive down Turnigan Arm. But they essentially are the, the same type of creature. And what they have the ability to do is go across those cliff faces and then they'll stop on a rocky crag. Why did they do that? Well, that's God built into them this ability to get in a place where praying animals cannot get to them, right? And that's what God does for us. He rescues us from such places where, and he puts us in, in a place of his blessing where we're out of harm's way. We're safe and secure in his hands. We're on the solid rock uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're on the sure foundation you know, uh, uh, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone on which we stand. Praise yes, praise God. David then continues, says, he put a, a, a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and hear and put their trust in, in the Lord. So you see progression here. I mean, he, he's in trouble. He cries out. God responds, hears and uh, inclines his ear, and, and in that process, God then rescues him out of the pit of roaring and out of the miry clay and puts his feet on the solid ground, and, and that produces something in David and should produce something in us. Mouths that want to praise the Lord. He puts a song of praise. God's deliverance should issue forth in words of praise and adoration and thanksgiving for his rescuing us, his marvelous works on our behalf. behalf. I don't know if you know this or not, but I truly love singing praise to the Lord with you on a Sunday morning. It's one of my great joys just to sing praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for his marvelous works. And the songs that we intentionally do focus more on God than on us. Because yeah. we want to praise him, not ourselves. We don't, we're not lifting up ourselves. We're lifting up our God who rescued us. Yeah. I, I'll share a secret. I love to sing songs by myself. And I'm often in this building alone uh, after everyone else has left for the day and then I, I hope Tom, Pastor Tom doesn't, you know, go too often to the ring cameras. Although he might not be able to hear it, so I'm okay. But as I'm walking around upstairs, either going into the kitchen or into another office or toward the restroom, oftentimes songs of praise are coming out of my mind. I just love to sing songs of praise to the Lord. And, and you know, I would say that if we've experienced God's rescue and have the him of praise that he puts in us and 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 we're singing it out and we're living it out then what comes out of our lips and out of our lives uh, others will be moved to consider that God is God who rescues and and that what David says many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because of our songs of praise our lives of praise so, from the experience of his deliverance, David moves more generally, generally to the blessedness of God's deliverance in verses 4 and 5. 
So from an expression of his personal experience of God's rescue, David pens words, you know, saying there's a blessedness for those who God delivers to anyone who will trust in him. From his own specific experience, he takes up this general blessedness. And then as the, you know, the the result of God rescuing his people in a time of need. He says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. So blessed, or to be envied, is another idea of this word, uh, blessed. Or as Greg shared many months ago, or was it years ago now, out of Matthew about blessed are the poor in spirit, the, the Beatitudes, the blessedness, the, the extreme happiness of knowing the Lord, the, the absolute joy of knowing the Lord, the blessedness of it. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust, who has his confidence in the great I am. Notice that the word Lord there is all in uppercase saying it's Yahweh. It's the covenant keeping God. Blessed is the person who makes Yahweh their confidence, their trust. Proverbs 14:26 tells us in the fear of the Lord has a one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. So the truly blessed man or woman is one who has come to realize that God is completely trustworthy. Trustworthy. And and they found their confidence and therefore their security in him. They know that they are on the rocky crag, safe and secure. Those who turn or regard the proud or the defiant, as David uh, puts it, will be disappointed, he says. They will be disappointed. But those who look on the Lord will not be. Those who look on those who lapse away or, or uh, go into lies will not experience the joy and the extreme happiness and, and the uh, place of, of envious living by others that God wants for them. So how foolish would we be as children of God, right? For us to refuse to find our security in the God who rescues, and we would look elsewhere in an attempt to escape our pain, our despair, our depression, our trouble. They only cause us to sink deeper and deeper down into the pit of roaring and in the miry clay. Looking elsewhere will only result in failure and frustration. In verse 5, David stresses that, that the past is full of God's mighty acts, his wondrous deeds, as he puts it, and, and that the future is full of God's plans and his purposes for us. Uh, he puts it this way, You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Get that? God, you've multiplied wondrous deeds, mighty acts, and you have so many thoughts towards us, we couldn't begin to count them. So the the Hebrew word for wondrous deeds refers to extraordinary and far-surpassing things that God has already done for us. We should be looking back on a regular basis. God, you did this for me. You did this for me. You did this for me. God, you gave me a wife who would stick with me for 50 years. Wow! You know, God, you did this for me. You supplied finances for me when it looked like I was in deep trouble. 
God, you did this for me. Just look back at the wondrous deeds God has done for you. And then be thinking about his thoughts toward you. That looks forward, doesn't it? Looks to the future. And, uh, you know, it says God has so many thoughts for us. Not only has there been God been there for us in the past, but he's already got a plan that has intricate details of what's going to come our way in the future. God is that interested in your life. Get that? God is that interested in your life. Do you know it? I mean, do you? Do you believe that? He's thinking about what he's going to do for you. Not only what he's done for you, but what he has planned for you. No wonder there is no one else who can compare with God, as David puts it. No one can compare with you. Everyone else is more interested in their own affairs than yours. Everyone else is busy planning out goals and strategies for their own life rather than directing their thoughts toward you. But God is constantly directing his thoughts about you, toward you. Wow. And so David says, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Yeah, how true. God's acts of deliverance on our uh, account are too vast to ever be numbered. Let me try to count the ways. Well, that's like looking up the stars at night and say, let me count the stars. Or going to the beach and saying, I'm going to count all the grains of sand on this beach. Yeah, that's not happening, is it? Well, let me, let me recount all the wonderful deeds and thoughts that God has for me. Yeah, not possible. There are too many to count. Glorious. That's right. You moved. <laughs> Woo. Well. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm so observant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think of the story in the Old Testament of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. You know, she had heard so much about him and she gets there and spends time with him as a you know, look at his kingdom, so to speak, and she's her words were this, the half has not been told. All the more, right? We, half? We could never even get to half. It, no way. A quarter? No, not, not an eighth. Not, not, not a 32nd. I mean, we, we just can't know. Maybe we'll know in heaven. Maybe God will run a fast clip video for us of all the things he did for us and, you show us his thoughts. I, 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 don't, I don't know, and I don't care. I just know that this scripture is so true. He's constantly thinking about you. And you should rejoice in that. And what he's thinking about you is, I want to rescue them from that trial. I want to deliver them from that. So, yes, the person who waits patiently for the Lord and fully trusts in the Lord of salvation is truly a blessed person, right? A blessed person and should praise God. The, from there, David goes to the proper response to God's deliverance in verses 6 through 10. He, he expresses what every believer should, uh, you know, how we should all respond to God's act of deli- acts of deliverance. And in verses 6 through 8, it basically is saying we should take pleasure in doing God's will. Now, I've titled that, those verses as wholehearted obedience wholehearted obedience. It should be true 
for us. And then in verses 9 and 10, he indicates that we should be actively proclaiming God's deliverance to other people. So, wholehearted uh, obedience is what he talks about in verses 6 through 8. And, and just so that you know, these verses are the messianic portion of this psalm. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, of the Messiah. Ultimately, we should know that. This is, David's writing about his own life and others like him. But ultimately, God said this would be the, the picture of the Son of God who came to do the will of God and did it with a whole heart and brought many people into relationship with the Lord because he was willing to delight in doing the will of God though it would cause him such pain. So David says, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come. Uh, in, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So here's a question. Is David really saying at this point that God didn't take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings? Well, no. That's not what he's saying because it was God who actually commanded the children of Israel to offer sacrifices and offerings. So he's clearly not saying that and still in the Old Testament economy. And and by the way, uh, God commands us to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We've already read it out of Hebrews 13, 15. We should offer up the continual sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, you know, to to God, that where we confess His name, acknowledge Him, and give praise to Him. So, what is He saying when He writes this that God didn't want that? Well, He's saying that the proper response to God's marvelous deliverance is wholehearted surrender, wholehearted sacrifice, wholehearted obedience to the Lord. I mean, God doesn't want us to act out of ritual, out of mechanical duty, but because of our relationship with him, right? That's what he wanted. He wanted that out of David as well. David made made that even more clear in Psalm 51, his prayer of repentance. You can read that on your own. He basically says the same thing. You, you, You don't want that. What you want is my submission, my obedience from a whole heart. That's what he's saying here. So when when David says that God doesn't delight in sacrificing and offering, it means that he doesn't delight or take pleasure in the sacrifice itself. You know, it's just an animal back then, right? And what he takes delight in is when the sacrifice is accompanied by the attitude of submission and surrender and obedience and joy because of having a relationship with him. That's the real value to God. It, it honors God. And so the phrase, you've given me an open ear, you, you don't want this, you want wholehearted obedience, this gets what he means by you've given me an open ear. Uh, different translations have different, or versions have different phrases for that. But it's often thought that this is a reference to the Old Testament practice where uh, a, a Jew is uh, in debtor's Slave uh, enslavement to another person, and and when the time came for all slaves to be, you know, on the the jubilee year, they would all be set free. That that slave had been so well taken care of by the master that he, he would tell the master, "I don't, I don't want to leave. I want to stay your servant." 
And then the, the master would take an all. They'd go to a doorpost, and this is where ear piercing, you know, started. Apparently, they would put it on the doorpost and run the all through the ear, and that would be a you know sign. I don't think that that's what this is reference to. And in fact, the the phrase that he uses here would uh, be more adequately translated as my ears you have dug my ears you have dug well that just sounds like that painful process where you go to the doctor because you got too much wax build up and sometimes they just use liquid and flush it out you know and it's like oh that's disgusting and other times they'll take a little pick or like tweezers and they're picking away and man that hurts like crazy but they're digging out the wax right and so the picture of this is that he said, God, you'll, you, you've opened my ear to hear from you. you. You've taken away the deafness that was caused by my sin and the d- despair and the depression and all of that. You've opened my ear so I would hear from you in your word is what he's basically saying. So if you'll let God... If you'll let God, he will take away your deafness and give you ears to hear what he wants you to hear from his word. Right? So it is as in Isaiah 50 in verse 4, which says, Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. God awakens our ear to hear him in his word. So if you get up in the morning like I do and you read your Bible, get ready. You'll be listening to God. You know, and, and don't put in AirPods and listen to something else while you're doing it. Just pay attention to what God is saying to you in his words. He'll, in his word, he'll speak to you. So again, God doesn't delight in the mechanical movements of believers, but one who is intent on listening for him to speak in his word and then is moved in his heart wholeheartedly to obey God, to do his will. You remember the words of Jesus in the gospel when he spoke to the crowds and he started speaking in parables. And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, those that, the religious leaders, they couldn't hear him. He said that in John 8. You you can't hear my words. They couldn't. I mean, they heard the words, but not really heard the words, right? And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Also, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you get the seven letters from the Lord Jesus to the churches. And it says at the end of each of those letters, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We should have ears ready to hear. Those who have experienced the deliverance of the Lord from sin ought to have their ears tuned to the right channel, uh, if you're on radio metaphor, or the right podcast, if you're using that metaphor, they should not be listening to those frequencies or those podcasts, you know, that are pushing the philosophies of men and the empty deceit and lies of the enemy and human traditions and strategies for dealing with life's difficulties. No, no, they should Tune into the God channel or tune, tune into the God podcast, which you can do every day by just opening your Bible and reading it. Eagerly waiting to hear from God, hungering to hear what he wants from you. 
It'll be like Isaiah 30 describes it. You'll hear a voice behind you and it'll tell you, go there or go there, right or left. If you listen as you read God's word, he'll direct you. And he'll be directing you away from the danger and the despair and the depression and the trial onto the rocky crag where you'll be safe and secure. So David says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is written within my heart. So the child of God who has experienced salvation of the Lord and his constant deliverance from trouble takes pleasure, is what he's saying, in doing God's will. And listen how the Apostle John describes it. He says that the one who has come to know the love of God uh, through Jesus, you know, through his sacrifice, is one who keeps his commandments. How do we know that we know God? We keep his commandments. And his commandments, he says, are not burdensome. They're a delight to do. It's not like, oh, really? I got to love that person? Oh, really? I got to sacrifice for that? Oh, really? I got to do that? No, no, it's not that way. If you really know the Lord and his deliverance, it's like, oh, yes, I get to do that. Oh, yes, God has been so good to me. I want to show it. So, you know, people have the experience knowing God. Well, they've exchanged the temporary pleasure of following their own will, their own desire, and they've exchanged it for the eternal delight of obeying God wholeheartedly. And they take the time to treasure up or store up the law of God within their heart so they might not sin against God, which would take them back into the pit, into the miry clay. You know, it's like David said in Psalm 119, right? 9 through, nine through 11. How shall a person keep his way clean? By taking heed according to your word. Let me not wander from your commandments, he says. Let me treasure up your word in my life. Store it up in order that I might not sin against you. And then because their hearts are filled up with God's word, they naturally take pleasure in doing God's will. Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you delight in doing God's will? Or it's like... Really, not only that, they also proclaim it to others. That's what he's saying in verses 9 through 10. Listen to his words. I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance from within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Now, isn't it, isn't it true that those who have been rescued from some danger love to tell the story of the rescuer? That's just, that's understood. That's what you do. Someone saved you, you're in a car crash, and they got you out of the car, and they, they, they revived you through compression. You, you know, your heart had stopped, and they revived you. It's like, you're going to want to tell that story to other people. This person did this for me. That's, that's the way it is, and that's what David is saying. It should always be true for us that we who have experienced the salvation of the Lord should want to talk about him often, and to many. That's what David is saying. It should be natural for us to speak of his faithfulness and his steadfast love for us without reservation. We, we should not allow the story of his rescue of our lives to lie dormant, hidden within our hearts, 
keeping quiet about it, right? He says, no, I, you know, Lord, I haven't done that. I've spoken out to the great congregation. I, I want to proclaim your deliverance to other people. This is what's called evangelizing, right? This is sharing the gospel. Listen to what Jesus said to a man from whom he had cast out a legion of demons. You know, they were driven into the pigs, and the pigs went into the water. And You're probably familiar with that story. After the man was set free, Jesus said to him, Go home to your friends. The man said, I want to go with you. Jesus said, No, 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 no. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go and tell. And how he has shown mercy to you. And, and, and this was his response. He went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's what David's saying. And that's what we should be doing, proclaiming God's deliverance to others. Now, in, in, in the second half, which I'm just going to breeze through, God, uh, David says, God will deliver me whether from my present trial or my future trials, he will deliver me, and so I pray to him. A few different things about that. If you're phoning in, your insert letter A is going to be trust in God's deliverance. Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He knows that God will not withhold his compassion and a steadfast love. And and you and I should be confident of that as well. We can be sure that the Lord will be there when we cry out to him. That he'll be there because he loves us. He loves us and he will continue to love us. It is his nature to be faithful to those who belong to him, whom he has delivered from sin. You know, Solomon spoke of this as well, saying... And I've already quoted this out of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, right? Great is his faithfulness. And Paul would put it in these words. We've already covered them, so I'll just read them again out of Romans 8. What shall or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So trust. Trust in the Lord, in his deliverance. Letter B, the need of God's deliverance. There are three things that he identifies. and just let you write them in here. The first of which is difficult trials. He says, for evils have encompassed me without number. Quite a, quite a picture there. You're in the picture and all around you. <laughs> You're encircled by evils, by sinful people, by difficulty, evil difficulty. Mm, 
kind of like uh, Elisha and the servant, <laughs> you know, encircled by the army of the Syrians. And Elisha says, oh, Lord, just open the servant's eyes so he can see. Looks up, and, and they're encircled. The whole army is encircled by the army of the Lord. It's like, yeah, yeah, God is there for us. If we're encompassed by evil, and sometimes it, it feels that way, and I think all the more so, all the more so in our day and age with the culture in which we live, hey, we face that. God is there for us in that. We have to keep our sufferings in perspective, right? We've talked about this. They're momentary. They're light compared with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. The second area of trouble he speaks about is guilt from sin. Guilt from sin. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Now, I, I have less hairs on my head than I used to, so I guess my guilt isn't as much as it used to be. But, you know, that's quite a picture. Uh, they've overtaken me. It's like the hairs on my head. There's so many, I can't count them all. All my, my sin is overwhelming me. My heart fails me. And, and, and the, the word iniquities basically focuses on guilt. On guilt incurred from our own evil acts. Evil is surrounding us, but we've got our own evil acts to deal with. And God is there for us in that as well. You know, the, the evil one, Satan, the enemy, he wants to keep you trapped there. He, if he can keep you in guilt, then he'll keep you in the pit of roaring and in the miry clay. It'll keep you stuck there. You won't move forward. You won't be praising the Lord. You won't be proclaiming the deliverance to other people because you don't feel like he could deliver you. Just acknowledge your guilt before the Lord. Confess your sin, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Eh? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We celebrate that. The third area... Uh, that he describes as enemies. He says, let those who put to shame be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. It's like, it's like the, you know, the, the people today that save Christians. Aha, hypocrite, aha. I, I, knew, I knew that you didn't really believe what you say. Aha! You know, they love to catch you in a fault or in a fall. And that, that's what enemies do. And it is reference to those who take delight in causing us pain that way. You know, sometimes that pain comes from those that are close to us and our families. Sometimes it comes from people who we don't know. In either case, God will not leave you in their hands. He doesn't leave you in the enemy's hands. He puts you on the rocky crag. Right? Safe and secure in his hands. He'll come to your rescue. He'll come to your rescue. The Apostle John said it this way. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Now, it's not our faith itself. It's our faith in Christ, and that's what he goes on to say. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's overcome, and so we aren't overcome by our enemies. We are more than overcomers, actually, in all those things. He ends the psalm with a beautiful 
statement about praise and and a final prayer. And, and I pray that during this week, as I already mentioned, in which you will surely face difficulties, we all will, that you'll stop and think about the wonder of God's deliverance in your past and his deliverance that he's already planned for you in the future. And I, and I hope that you'll be encouraged knowing that if you'll wait on the Lord, he'll come to your rescue. He will. So fitting conclusion is by, given by David this way. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is Yahweh. Great is the Lord, all uppercase, right? Great is Yahweh, the covenant promise-keeping God. As for me, he says, I am poor and needy, but the Lord Adonai, the, the master who takes care of his servants, takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God, Elohim, the sovereign God over all things. So, hmm, are you seeking for the Lord's deliverance? I hope that you, along with me, will not turn aside to other people or to self-help books or to our own strategies or to others or to, you know, substances to me, you know, give us some kind of relief from the troubles that we're facing. If we'll seek the Lord, we too can rejoice like David did. We, we, we too will experience more of the Lord's deliverances. You know, we're all poor. We're all needy. But the Lord takes thought of us. Do you know that? He's thinking of you right now. He's thinking of you. All praise to him. He not only has been, but will be our help and deliverer. So, you know, if you kind of forgotten that you've kind of been wrapped up in your troubles and felt like you've just been under a blanket heavy blanket you can't get out from underneath the blanket of trouble just let the lord he'll pull it aside if you just call out to him he'll pull it aside he'll pull it off you he'll rescue you he'll pull you out of that mess and he'll put your feet and your heart and your life on a rocky crag safe and secure for the hands from the hands of the enemy and so if you're already like me, like I've been doing all this week as I've been thinking about this psalm, rejoicing in his deliverances, won't you say this with me? Great is the Lord. Yeah. So I'm going to count to three, and then let's all say it with all the, all the muster that we can, okay? One, two, three. Great is the Lord. Now you're talking. All praise be to him. Lord, we are thankful for this wonderful psalm reminding us, this, this message that David gave to the children of Israel to sing together, to rejoice together in your great deliverance. And so we've get, kind of paused and given thought to that, and we are thankful for it. And we who know you through faith in Jesus Christ, we say, most wholeheartedly thank you for delivering us from sin's penalty. And we who know you 
we trust you as a loving father to come to our rescue. We, we say thank you for all the times that you've rescued us already. Thank you that you'll be there every time we're in need. You'll come to our rescue. Sometimes that rescue may not be to remove the attacker, but you will remove us from the pain of the attack. We're thankful for that. But Lord, there may be maybe someone here. They they have come to realize they don't truly know you. They've not ever really experienced the joy of your deliverance. And I pray that they might understand from this passage, as it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, it's really a quote about the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice, his wholehearted obedience to the will of the Father to become the Savior, come into this world as a baby, live a perfect life so that he might become the perfect remedy for people's sin. Thank you that he did that. All praise and glory be to him. And if someone is just realizing that now, may they turn to you, just trust in you. In the quiet of their heart, they turn, turn to you, cry out for deliverance from sin. Repent of it and turn to Jesus and and be saved. Experience his deliverance from the penalty of sin. Thank you, too, that we get to enjoy a meal together and then we get to serve together and doing some decorations. You're so good to us. We praise your name in his great name. Amen.